Evening, church. I'm going to share some, uh, begin by sharing some personal details uh, about us in the hopes that you'll fall in love with us and, and not burn me at the stake once I start to speak. We are basically now missionaries working without borders. Um, let me share some details, what's going on. The earth, the world is changing a lot. Any missionary will tell you that. Anyone living in the United States will tell you that. Our culture, our world is changing. Um, there is a growing apathyism in the first world. You can see apathy and atheism combining there. People don't believe in God, but they really don't care. They don't want to talk about God. The way that we do missions is starting to change because of the dynamic of our target audience is changing. There's a resurgence of the world's religions. As Europe and America decolonize and stop controlling the earth, what happened was Religions like Islam and Buddhism and Hinduism have resurged and now are dealing from a position of strength. God is eating the guts away at Islam. Very interesting. I'll talk about that more on Sunday morning. But we are starting to have to understand these religions well and their worldview well in order to communicate the gospel clearly. Missionaries have made lots of mistakes over the years. By simply taking the gospel that we know and understand in America through our cultural grid and throwing it into the African grid and assuming they're going to understand it the way we do. And they haven't. They've syncretized it with their worldview and come up with a mess as far as the Christian faith in their countries and their continents. we got to redo the way that we understand things. So evangelical Christianity is still the fastest growing religious faith in the world. Okay? So be encouraged. Though Christendom is shrinking, evangelical, the, those who truly believe in the gospel, our faith is expanding. I'm going to talk to you about what God is doing on that score on Sunday morning as well. So you don't want to miss that. Islam has split into a moderate folk Islam and a radical Islam. And then there's like 60% right in the middle. And let me just say this, and I'll talk about this again Sunday. ISIS is one of the greatest gifts to the gospel that we've had in recent years. More Muslims are becoming sickened by the Islamic faith and turning to Christ as a result of what ISIS is doing. So yeah, it's bad, but typical of our God, it's perfect plan. Countries are closing to missionaries. Um, the cultures came back, but their teammates were just sent home. What's happening now in a lot of countries, they're realizing, and let me, uh, no commentary on our current administration. I don't want to get into politics. Let me just say this. The State Department is no longer putting pressure on countries to keep their borders open for missionaries. And so what's happening now is countries are starting to give you a two-year religious worker visa or volunteer visa, non-renewable. So you got two years. That's it. Otherwise, you're going to have to go in on a work visa, very difficult and expensive to get, or you're going to have to go in on some kind of student visa. Not easy either. So... Countries are starting to close. All nations are mixing it up with all nations. Uh, you're seeing this with the refugee crisis in Europe. Uh, our mission has planted the first evangelical church on the island of Venice in 1,600 years. There's not one Italian in it. It's all Filipinos. You can say, I'm going to reach Syrians in Toronto. So the world is mix-mash. You don't say, I'm going to France to work with the French. I mean, it's... People don't do that anymore. And the thing that's very difficult for missionaries is as the world moves to the cities, 
And as we're working in France with North Africans, Filipinos, Syrians, and a little bit of French in there, you've got to start to understand how all of those cultures think because they're processing the gospel each through their own grid. And in many cases, because the world is blending, in South Africa, we have a Chinese family working with the rest of our team in Johannesburg. That means you got to understand African culture. You got to understand white European culture. You got to understand Chinese culture. And uh, it becomes very confusing. And so the level of training for missionaries is going to have to increase. So the shifts in missions, missionaries and national pastors need better training and apologetics and in the worldview. ABWE is redoing their whole approach to reaching African countries because we failed to address worldview issues in the past. Knowing other religions and cultures well, the missionary skills and objectives are changing how we're trying to do things. What if you had two years in a country and you were supposed to plant a church? How would you plant that church? Your objectives, your strategy, your procedures would all change because you only got two years. We're starting to use more and more tent making and business as mission. And so one of the elements of what I'm working with is actually getting American Christian businessmen to take their job skills over into the culture and to say, how can I bring my farming skills or my accounting skills or my carpentry skills to Indonesia? And how can I help the local churches there to start to develop their own business sense and their own ability to generate income so that the churches take off? Missionary co-workers are foreigners. I've already mentioned this. And urban missions is expensive and dangerous. Oh, it's wonderful to talk about a missionary, you know, living in a village and reaching 70 people or so, and that is needed. But that is also very convenient and, and not often quite as dangerous as moving into downtown Nairobi, Kenya, or into the slums. Missionaries go, and they are overwhelmed by the evil that they see. And the tendency to draw in the wagons and to withdraw, you're still viewed as a hero by American churches because you live in Nairobi, Kenya. But you're getting very, very little done. You're not learning the language. You're not learning the culture. You're huddling your kids in. And after a year and a half, two years, three years, missionaries are still not engaging the culture because they are so overwhelmed by the evil that they're meeting when they're out there. We're going to have to do some things differently. Training has to change. So we work with biblical ministries worldwide, 500 missionaries in about 38 different countries. We've served with BMW for 22 years. This was our first prayer card. <clears throat> and yes, you can be a smart aleck. I have changed. But my wife remains unchanged because she is more like the Lord and the Lord does not change. So that was the first one. That was the second one. Um, 1999, 2004, 2006. Oops, two of them got married. So 2010, just down to the two, and now it's, yes, sir, just us, empty nesters. Our kids are out there. Josh is a contractor, married a godly woman, has four wonderful kids. They're involved with a church plant in Allentown, Pennsylvania, downtown uh, immigrant and minority population. Four Northland couples converged on this city to plant a church there. Stephanie uh, married Justin, both Northland grads. He's a police officer. They had twins, 
Click and clack, I call them. Nick married Julia. They have been teaching in a Christian school on the island of Guam in the Pacific for the last four years. Looking to come back to the States soon with Jason Nora. We'll get to meet Nora in a few weeks when we're in Guam. I'm teaching a church history course there to a Bible college on the island of Guam. And I'll get to meet her for the first time. And then Ellie and Johnny, pictured here with Karen. Ellie, Ellie was the most African of our children. She is an African-American. Um, Johnny is an ABWE missionary kid. And if you know the Yoders in, in, with ABWE, a pilot family, uh, Hank Skeltima and the Yoders on the Amazon for 30 years. And so Johnny grew up there. They are both backward people. They're now teaching English in China. We doubt that we'll ever see them uh, they are very much children of foreign, foreign lands. If they, if they haven't been on a plane in nine months' time, they just kind of start shaking, you know. So that's where our kids are. We've been involved in three church plants over the period of 22 years. Our main function is in mentoring leaders. Because the fact is, if you get up and you're a pastor and you transition out without training leaders, the church will fold and collapse. And a lot of missionaries, unfortunately, do that. The fact is, uh, pastors use their people to grow their church. Church planters use their church to grow their people. So we'll put guys in the pulpit who aren't all that good because they need the practice. So the church is the guinea pigs listening to these young guys. Um, Daniel Warren got up and gave a message on Josiah. and It lasted an hour and 35 minutes. He said, how'd I do? I said, it was the best three messages I ever heard. Well, the churches have to live with that because we're training leaders. Because when you leave leaders behind, they will make ministry happen. So I served as the area director for Europe for six years, overseeing our team there in eight different countries. I also served as area director for Africa. So not only training pastors, elders, elders, deacons, and their wives, but now training missionaries, being involved in actually training people before they go out to the field. My new role now is the director of global education. So I'm responsible for all training of all missionaries entering into the mission to get them ready to move from Seattle to Kenya or whatever. Uh, that takes a lot of rethinking, retraining. What is a church? What isn't a church? What is a biblical church? What is a cultural church? You got to know the difference between the two because you can't go and plant Edgewood in Southern Africa. It doesn't look like that. It doesn't work like that. And so you got to, a lot of mind games, a lot of getting them to rethink through what is biblical versus what is cultural. Very, very important. So I do training of national church leaders overseas. My wife joins me in that. She's finishing up her master's degree. We also train missionaries before they go overseas. But then on this side, it's getting business people involved in missions, whether on short term or actually relocating as tent makers overseas. Do you know right now that Amazon is hiring 10,000 IT positions in Europe? Do you realize that we got a number of churches across Europe that you could plug into? I'd love to show you our poster boy, Scott Fries, graduated from Northland with a degree in music, church music, never could use it. But he knew Mac computers, and he got a job with iTunes in Luxembourg. Full pay, full benefits, sweet action, baby. He's got a really nice apartment, and he leads the music and helps at our church plant, uh, Christian Community Church in Luxembourg. And he preaches when the main missionary is gone. Classic tent maker, working at a regular job, but also helping the ministry to go forward, just like a lot of you do here, but just in a foreign context. 
Getting missions people involved in business, that sounds strange. The idea is this. In South Africa, we worked with AIDS orphans for a bit. Um, a lot of ministries start, you know, help the orphans, start a school, start an orphanage, and it's like, we need American money nonstop in order to make this happen. There's got to be a better way to do this rather than creating this American dependence. We've got to, to make orphanages that are self-sustaining. We've got to make schools that are actually self-funding. How do you do that? Well, take some training to get missionaries to start to think, you know, I can't just be on the dole all the time. What if the American churches dry up? What if all the American missionaries come home? Then what happens? Are we going to have everybody on a dollar string for us? You know, you could print ATM across a missionary's T-shirt. You know, come, get us. We're just money dispensers. We've got to teach them to support themselves from the very beginning. And so that's part of what we do as well. All right, our theme for this missions conference this weekend is piercing the darkness. First message in the series is on the hiddenness of God. That's going to sound kind of strange. This is going to be a little bit of a mental exercise for you tonight. I know some of you are stiff and starchy. You've been at work all week. You're coming. Rigor mortis is setting in on Friday night. But try to stick with me because I'm going to say some things tonight. You're going to be like, huh? Is this guy evil or what? And I need to speak to Pastor Jeff. We're going to be in John chapter 1 if you want to turn there. Less than a month ago, guys, Colombia's president, Juan Manuel Santos, announced the findings of perhaps the world's largest treasure. On June 8th, 1708, the Spanish galleon, the San Jose, with 600 people aboard, that's a big ship back in those days, sank as it was trying to outrun a fleet of British warships. More than 700 feet down, it is believed to have been carrying 11 million gold coins and jewels from the then Spanish-controlled colonies that could today be worth more than $10 billion. 1708, that's 308 years ago, history became legend, legend became myth. And the wreck had all but passed out of memory except for some old papers documenting the loss. Many skeptical historians denied the size of the cargo, saying that Spain had made up the story for various reasons. Most doubted such a large quantity of gold. And over time, most people just didn't care. And then submarine cameras found it. The hidden was brought out and magnified. And now people are starting to believe. It was initially located in 1982, and there have been quiet lawsuits over it. Leave it up to lawyers to wreck the fun and suck the fun out of everything. Lawsuits between Spain and Colombia and the Discovery Team since then. When it will be brought up has not yet been decided. And how much there is is unknown. As you can imagine... This causes huge excitement and huge frustration. Just like our God. He is the greatest treasure human could ever find. But he is hidden. There is evidence of him, yes. But there is skepticism about him. And 
many don't ever even think or care about him. To people who are in darkness, God is in the darkness. They cannot see him. And that is why we must go out as light bearers to neighbors and nations and next generations. We're in John chapter 1, looking at verses 6 to 8. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Father, guide our understanding as we sift through these concepts, some of which are strange and difficult, but oh so critical, especially for this church ministering in suburban Seattle in a very postmodern culture, one that is highly apotheistic. I pray that you would grant to them understanding and more than that, Father, by your spirit, that you would change them for good and light a fire underneath them for their mission right here and right now. And Father, if in your sovereignty you choose to call out from this church those who are already functioning well here in this setting, then by all means glorify yourself in doing so. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, some odd thoughts about darkness. First thing I want to share with you is that from a scientific perspective, there is no such thing as darkness. Let's close in prayer. No. Uh, darkness is a fiction. We live with fictions every day. You're familiar with legal fictions, a corporation, right? We do stuff on paper and we create a legal person. That is a fiction. There are fictions in science and fictions in reality all around us. For instance, there's no such thing as cold. Now, I just moved from northern Wisconsin. Don't tell me there's no such thing as cold. Two weeks ago, my wife and I stood at Graveside in Ottawa, Canada, the death of a close friend of ours. At Graveside, it was 47 degrees below zero. I had never experienced cold like that. Nonetheless, I was preparing my notes for this conference, and I decided to stick with the truth. There's no such thing as cold. Heat is a real thing. It has to have a source. Cold is the absence of heat. Similarly, there's no such thing as darkness. Light is real. It's a real thing, and it must have a real source. Light is made of particles that travel 186,000 miles a second, and those particles bend with gravity. Light travels much faster than sound. That's why a lot of people appear to be intelligent until you hear them speak. So there's no such thing truly as darkness. Darkness is just the absence of light. All the darkness in a huge room cannot put out the light. Now, I would love to have everybody, you know, just shut the, shut the lights out here. When you light a match and you hold that match up, and it's a good match, thanks for letting me use the matches, by the way, you get a flame that is roughly three-quarters of an inch tall and a half inch wide. 
But if all the lights were out in this auditorium and all the windows shaded and our eyes had adapted and gotten used to it, I could light this half inch across, an inch tall, and all of the darkness proportionate in this room to this light could not put out the light. Because there's no such thing as darkness. When light appears, darkness has to flee. Have you ever seen somebody in a room light up some darkness? The trick is you got to use the other end of the match, right? Strike it, and all of a sudden, there's this halo of darkness, and it eventually takes over the room. No, you're nuts. There's no such thing. If you got light in a room, you cannot create darkness that vanquishes that light. Impossible. Why? Darkness doesn't exist. Darkness is the way that we measure. Yeah, star darkness, never. Darkness doesn't exist. It's a fiction. It's the way that we describe a lack of light. It's the way God describes a lack of light. Interestingly enough, physically, God is light. But he has purposefully hidden himself. First Timothy 6.16 says that physically, God dwells in unapproachable light whom no man has seen nor can see. But no one has seen our God. If he is light and dwells in unapproachable light, how is it that we have not seen him? No one has ever seen the Father in his full manifestation. Moses came close, Isaiah came close, and they almost perished with the experience. The odd thing is also that though our God is himself light and dwells in unapproachable light, that often when he appears to humans on the earth, he uses this phrase all through the Old Testament, around him was thick darkness. I don't know what thick darkness is. Was it smoke? Was it fog? Was it something that he created? When he made the covenant with Abraham, there was thick darkness. When he came down and communicated, communicated with Moses on Mount Sinai. It was covered in thick darkness. When he stopped Pharaoh's chariots, when they were pursuing Israel up against the Red Sea, they were covered in this thick darkness. Our God is light. And yet he hides himself from physical manifestation to our eyes. And when he does appear on the human scene, it seems that he shields himself in a thick darkness, almost as if an act of mercy to shield us because surely his light would consume us all. Interesting that God created light, but not darkness. Genesis 1, 2, the earth was without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep. There was an absence of anything, but it never mentions God creating it. It's like there was that nothing yet, a total universe and an earth a primordial earth that was just totally dark. But then comes Genesis 1-3, and God said, let there be light. No sun, moon, and stars yet, no light bearers. So it must have been that our God, this is amazing from a metaphysical standpoint, our God entered into the cosmos and physically himself created light. He became that light until he created light bearers. Really cool stuff. Now, in the scripture, physical darkness has a far more evil twin. It is known as spiritual darkness. 
The first question many people ask is, okay, dude, where did spiritual darkness come from? Where did evil come from? The atheists will look at us and they'll ask us this question. So, is evil eternal or did God create it? What do you do with that? Huh? What do you do with that? You punch him. No, you don't do that. Because what he's saying is, is evil eternal? That is, is it a God who Did evil exist alongside Jehovah from eternity past? And you say, well, no. So then he created. Be careful. It's what's known as a false dilemma. They only give you two options, and neither option is true. So be careful of getting caught in that trap. What happened was this. For all intelligent beings, angels and humans, in order for them to have love, in order for them to have goodness, in order for worship to be meaningful, God created the possibility of choice. The possibility of evil, but not evil. And then they'll start to argue with you on that one. He created choice because for someone to say, I adore you, I worship you, I think you are the greatest. That's not very meaningful. That's like computer programming. So you had to create an intelligent being, an angel or a human being, but you had to give them an option in order for their allegiance to be meaningful, in order for their worship to be meaningful. And so what happened was there came this option, this choice. There's God and then there's everything else. God is spiritual light. God is truth. God is goodness. And God is life. Anything that you choose other than God is leaving God. And it becomes ungodness in all of those realms. Ungodness in reference to spiritual light is what we call darkness. Ungodness in reference to truth is what we call lies, falsehood, and error which also can be argued that it doesn't exist. You only measure falsehood by how it measures up against the standard of what is true. If you take away true, then it's like, hey, well, well, whatever. It's your view and my view, and whatever floats your boat sounds very postmodern, doesn't it? Yeah, that's Seattle for you. There is a standard of truth. Whatever moves away from goodness is evil. Whatever moves away from life is considered death. And death is also a very interesting fiction. It's a way of describing a separation from God. Because nothing that God creates, whether it's an angel or human, gets destroyed and ceases existence. It will live somewhere forever. And so when, it, when we talk about death, death is merely a quality of life that is so bad and so far away from God that we call it death. All right? So we're doing some mind games here. Now, Lucifer. Lucifer was the first one to make a choice against God. And he got Adam and Eve to make that same choice. He walked away from truth. They walked away from truth. They lost their goodness. They were cast out of the garden into darkness and began to die. This began the kingdom of darkness. Angels and mankind infected with sin and united with God. 
In a lot of the early books of the Old Testament, there's not a lot of talk about the spiritual darkness. It's the Old Testament poets and the prophets that start to talk about it, and they describe fallen and broken humanity as walking in darkness. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Welcome to our culture. Isaiah 42, 6 and 7, I am the Lord. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon and from the prison, those who sit in darkness. Then he foretold about the Messiah in Isaiah 9, verse 2. The people that have walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them the light has shined. And finally, Isaiah came, and John was the witness of that light. John 1.4 said, in Jesus was life, and this life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it, did not overcome it. And then John came to bear witness of that light. John the Baptist sets the model for us when it comes to piercing the darkness. We are witnesses to the light. To those in darkness, God is in the darkness. They cannot see him. They see wisps and flashes of light. But most of them are too occupied with other stuff. Again, if we had the luxury and the time, we could shut off all the lights in this auditorium. All of you facing this way, and I would go to the back with, oh, with my flashlight. And I would not point. You would be looking this way into the darkness but as I walked around in the back, I would go like this with the light, and I would go like that with the light. And you would see flashes and wisps of light. And you'd say, what is that? Oh, I don't know. I don't really care. I, I see it every once in a while. It's just something must be, I don't know. I really don't know what it is. That's the way the lost understand God. The light is there, but they cannot see it. But they see evidences of this God somewhere in the room but they don't understand it unless someone comes and says, there is a source of that light. And it's more intense than you've ever experienced before. Let me explain it to you. So the hiddenness of God. God has struck a balance between hiding himself and revealing himself. It's one of the most interesting, artistic, and yet frustrating things about our God. This hiddenness. As Christians, we spend so much time and energy talking about how God has revealed himself as though it should be plain as the nose on your face. And an atheist comes up to us and we're like, dude, you're from another planet. Don't you see God is as plain as day? And he's like, I don't see it. And it's not just atheists, my friends. It's Christians as well. Growing up, I never heard a message on the hiddenness of God. I've taught through the full range of systematic theology seven times. And very seldom will you see any systematic theology text on the hiddenness of God. But it is everywhere. And maybe after this message, you'll be reading through in your Bible time and you'll be like, oh, there it is. It's all over the place in the scripture. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The Lord our God has secrets known to no one. We are not accountable for them. But we and our children are accountable forever for all that he has revealed to us so that we may obey all the terms of these instructions. 
Proverbs 25.2, it is the glory of God to conceal things and the glory of kings to search them out. Isaiah 45.15, truly you are a God who hides himself, O God of Israel, the Savior. And it's not just true of Yahweh. Jesus, just like his father, hid who he was and what he was saying. Now this will start to ring true because a lot of you know Jesus a little bit more familiarly than you know Jehovah. Jesus was born under radar in Bethlehem, away from home, became a refugee by age two, was not born in Jerusalem. Where do you think the King of Kings and Lord of Lords should be born? Huh? Wouldn't you want to make it like, bam, right in, you know, right in the high priest household in Jerusalem? You know, the Messiah has been born. But no, no. Okay, and the night he was born, angels, they got a job. Who do you think they should appear to? I would say Herod. I would say the high priest. But no, oh no, oh no. Only shepherds out in the fields keeping watch over their flock by night. Only nobodies so as to stay hidden. Fifteen times in the gospel, somebody tells Jesus, you're the Messiah. Fifteen times he used this phrase, see that you tell no one. What's going on? This is the perfect PR moment. You've just healed these guys. Okay, it's time to let her rip. You know? You are the, you are the, I believe that you are the Christ. See that you tell no one. I'm doing a messianic miracle right here in front of you. Don't tell anyone. Unbelievable. He spoke truths in parables so that only true seekers, there's the key, would understand. Matthew eleven twenty five. 25, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. You hid them for such was your gracious will. Luke 9, 45, but they did not understand this saying and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it and they were afraid to ask him about it. It got really bad for the disciples. There's poor guys. And I gotta ask Jesus, I, I, there's no humor recorded in scripture, but some of this stuff is hilarious, you know? It's like he's given them this parable and this parable and they're all looking at each other like, what did he say? What did he mean? And then they go and get the gumption up to ask him and then he would explain it, and, you know, and finally they said to him, you know, why don't you just speak plainly? And he said, very well. The Son of Man is going to Jerusalem, and he will be betrayed and handed over to the authorities, and he will be killed, and he will rise again the third day. And they all look at each other and they're like, I wonder what he meant by that. <laughs> so hidden, so hidden are Jesus. When those going to Emmaus recognized him, <gasps> he disappears. As I said, God has struck this balance between hiding himself and revealing himself. It is his balance. We would perhaps like to see it some other way, and that leads to a lot of people having bad attitudes. God's hiddenness is hard for believers. Talk with many people, some of you going through hard times. How often have you said, I just enjoy five minutes with Jesus, just to ask him a few questions? God's hiddenness is hard and closes off non-believers. 
Talk to atheists and they make some strong arguments about our undetectable God. Atheist Richard Dawkins, by the way, he's facing some serious illness now, was asked what he would say if there was a God and he stood before him after death. Dawkins replied, and you can see this on YouTube, so who are you? Are you Zeus? Are you Apollo? Are you Odin? Are you Yahweh? Are you Allah? Are you Brahma? You have made your identity woefully unclear. Hmm. Judging God. Pretty interesting, is it? The skeptic might put it this way. Well, if God existed, he would make his existence more obvious. God is not obvious. Therefore, God likely does not exist. That is how they put it to us. Well, they've made themselves God, number one, by saying what God must do. And number two, I'm, I'm rather skeptical about this. I often talk to my students about this to say, you know, get one of these skeptics in a room. And of course, skepticism is a great accountability partner for dogmatism, but it doesn't build anything up. It only tears down. So to say, well, listen, okay, say I could talk to God and get God to appear. Would you believe in him? What are you talking about? Number one, there is no God, so how can you? All right, all right. Would you mind? Okay, fine, whatever. All right, Lord, would you please? And God, in, in his kindness, as in the days of old, with his Shekinah glory, all of a sudden, a wind begins to blow, and a thundering, and a lightning, and thick darkness, yeah. And uh, all of a sudden you hear, I am that I am. And then, He's gone. The atheist looks at me and says, how did you do that? <laughs> I can make God appear to them and give all five senses a sensory image and they still will not believe. Why? Because it is not a matter of senses. It is a matter of the heart. To those in darkness, God is in darkness. And for many of them, they want him to stay there. For some, they're intellectual atheists. Oh, they've studied all the reason. They don't think cognitively there's enough evidence to believe that in fact there is a God. But there are also emotional atheists who are angry with God for something that happened when they were young. A friend dying, a sister with cerebral palsy, something happening that they did not like and they are angry. And so they decided to kill God for what he did. And let's be careful that we not dismiss it too soon because if you live in Africa or you live in the Middle East and you see the suffering there, it is powerful to say, where is our God? And then there are the willful atheists. Dude, I got a life to live. I want to party hardy. And believing that there's a God that I'm going to answer to, like, just like, like it's really inconvenient. So I don't believe there's any God because you know what? I'm going li to just live my life, you know? So leave me alone. And then there are the relational atheists. Somebody in Hollywood believes is an atheist and therefore I want to be cool like them. Daniel Radcliffe, the guy who plays Harry Potter. He's an atheist. He doesn't know squat, but he's an atheist because that's really like cool in the UK right now. And so then everybody else is like, Oh, I want to be cool. The other, the other reason relational atheists pop up is because they're angry at their parents. Typically, it often happens in the U.S. 
They're angry at their parents. And the greatest dig you can give to your parents when you're a teenager is, well, I don't believe in God anymore. I'm an atheist. And their parents don't know what to do with it. And they're absolutely brokenhearted. So they're doing it to identify with a group or to identify against a group. Yeah. So we wonder, if God knows our skepticism, why doesn't he appear or do something really obvious? Why doesn't he put a neon cross in the heavens with the message, Jesus saves? That would be easy. Why didn't Jesus lecture systematic theology? Point number one, I am God. The atheists hit us all the time with that. Jesus never said he was God. I say, well, just look for stones, dude. Anytime they picked up stones, he said something wrong. Something that they were angry about. But no, Jesus, you know, he could have made it really easy. Just done it in our Western format. I am God, point number one. I existed in eternity past, point number two. And go on and saved us this work. How about sending large 100-foot angels to fly over Seattle proclaiming the gospel. Why does he use us? Or maybe I should ask the question, is he using us? Is he using you? And you may say, you. Yeah, well, maybe God will use Pastor Jeff. He doesn't share the gospel because he's a pastor friend. He shares the gospel because he is a Christian. Healthy sheep give birth to sheep. Healthy Christians give birth to Christians. And what's happening in other places of the world is very convicting for the American church. And if you're worried about what's happening with our politics and our culture here, it is because we have failed to share the gospel and win people to Christ one by one. So we have lost our culture one by one over the past 50, 60, 70 years. And now we are in this soup, angry that we have lost the Judeo-Christian ethics dominance in America. Well, I say farewell and good riddance. Let the men be men and everybody else, fish or cut bait. If you are a Christian, stand up and be counted. We are moving to the margins, people. We are moving into the realm of persecution. Welcome. Revive your church, fire us by a little bit of heat from a culture that doesn't understand us and wants to get rid of us. Like some of the principles of schools in this area I have heard. This hiddenness of God is hardest when we're going through suffering or enduring evil. David said in Psalm 10:1, why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? The problem of evil is one of the greatest things you will deal with in speaking with people around Seattle. They will say this argument that if God knows everything and is all loving and powerful, why doesn't he stop this? Why did he allow this to happen? And there are good answers. God letting a sin-cursed earth take its natural course. God is working out a greater good. God is working out some great plan through all of this. But only those who know God seem to take comfort in that. And so the truth is that God wants something from us as humans. As humanity, he gives us clues to get us seeking for him. The work of the believer, whether you are in Seattle or in Indonesia, does not matter. Our job is to be a mouthpiece for this light like John the Baptist was. 
It says he was not the light, but came to bear witness of the light. Jesus said something a little bit different. He said, I am the light of the world. And then in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, you are the light of the world. And we're not the originating source. We're more like the moon reflecting the sun's light. But we are the light bearers. God demands something of humanity. He gives us clues to get us seeking for him. So the worst thing the world can be is apathetic about God. And nothing builds apathy like wealth. Wealth builds comfort. Wealth builds ease. Wealth builds satisfaction. Wealth builds a quality of life such that I no longer need God. And you travel to Africa, and you travel to Southeast Asia, and you see thousands, guys, tens of thousands of people coming to Christ. Tens of thousands of penniless people who cannot build church buildings, who cannot afford vocational pastors. The church moving forward without any money. And we come in as the fancy pants American missionaries, and we say, we'll tell you how to do church. Listen, guys, I'm worried about Cuba. Obama's opening up Cuba. Do you realize that there is a healthy, vibrant church in Cuba that is poor and penniless and wonderful? And do you realize when the gates open up with Cuba and we're allowed to go in there, fancy pants Americans are going to go in and say, brother, let's build you a $1.2 million auditorium. We'll show you how church is really done. And they'll slow down the work of God with our money and our comfort and all our fancy stuff. Gospel's growing as a wildfire in these other places. So wealth and apathy, things that we struggle with and fight against. The Lord said in Jeremiah 29, you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. God is hidden, but God has revealed enough. He's revealed enough to hold us accountable. We know that the universe began. Scientists are unequivocal at that. We are consuming energy in the universe. Stars are burning and burning out. It had to begin at a point in time. And they're in a very uncomfortable position with their scientific findings these days. It all began at a finite point in time in the past. Really? What happened at that point in time? What was before that point in time? We don't know. Come on, say it. Say it. It was God. No, nothing acted upon nothing and created a whole lot of something. What an idiotic response. And these are the best astrophysicists in the world. Come on, give me a break. The universe began. The universe has intelligent design and fine-tuning for human life. The 38 fundamental constants of the universe, we're talking about like 158 zeros. You change one of those numbers and life would cease to exist. How is it that 38 dials on a wall were perfectly tuned for human life? And they say there's no God. To those in darkness, God is in the darkness, and they want to keep him there. There are universal morals. Hey, the UN is based on this. Was Hitler wrong, or did he just lose? See, these guys say, well, there are no absolutes. Oh, really? So Hitler just lost. No, Hitler was evil. Evil? Like universally evil? 
Yeah, that's interesting. So we all have that same moral code. Code means programmer. Law means a lawgiver. Who might that be? There's the intuitive idea of God. Children are incurably theistic. An idea of a spiritual world of life after death. You do something wrong, man, one day I'm going to pay for this. Near-death experiences to show that the brain and the soul are different. Do you realize that Germans are killing people? Now, let me back up and let me give you a context for that. <clears throat> There's a German doctor who, with people's permission, 1,200 people got permit. They signed their life away. <laughs> they gave him permission to kill them and bring them back to life. This was four years ago. And they put, they inject chemicals into them, keep their brain from decaying because they're dead. Some of them, eight, 10, almost 20 minutes, some of them. And what's happening is they, they have this sterile operating room where they do this, they kill the guy, and then they, a nurse will bring in a bright blue ball into the room. And another one brings a bright red triangle into the room. And they do all different kinds of stuff, and then they bring the dead people back. And in a majority of circumstances, the dead people can tell them what happened in that room while they were dead. Yeah, baby. That's right. It's called a human soul. That drives scientists nuts. The British thought it was a great idea, so they're getting 2,000 guys now. Yeah, but we're going to kill 2,000. Never let the Germans succeed ahead of us, you know? So these near-death experiences that the soul is different than the human brain. See, the atheists say we're just biochemical machines. But if you kill somebody, it should be all over. But these people are dying and then coming back, and obviously it hasn't been all over. Medical miracles. There's a team now of doctors from all different religions that have, they've written a, one volume in 600 pages now documenting medical miracles around the world. Things that are medically documented by doctors. This is not charismatic stuff. Medically documented by doctors that are inexplicable by medical science. It happened to my dad once. He had cancer and it just disappeared. And the guy, the doctors were all enthusiastic until they, they saw what happened. And they're like, we were going to write an article in the New England Journal of Medicine and forget that. There's no way that we can medically explain what happened to your dad. He has no cancer. Yeah, they gave him 90 days to live and then all of a sudden, clean bill of health. So they're documenting these things. So God is revealed enough. The flashes and wisps of light, they know these things, but they divert their eyes. I don't want to see those flashes and wisps of light. And God is hidden enough to keep us searching for him, to create curiosity. God refuses to be testable using the scientific method. They say, we can't detect your God. Well, that's just because you're too dumb to make a machine that does detect God. Hello? They don't like that. Um, you don't make friends making those arguments, but... Much of what God has revealed can't be understood by our current minds. That's why God gave us weather to keep science humble. Meteorology, who can figure that out? How about becoming a psychologist? Good luck with figuring a human being out. Especially the female type. Okay, never mind. Let's keep moving. So God is revealed. Just wrapping up here to, to finish up. Down to the bottom, the arguments that I just made, we can make arguments out of nature. The universe had a beginning. The universe had an intelligent designer. And in the mind, we know that our morals came from a moral programmer. And there is a deity. There is life after death. 
These things are flashes and wisps of light around people, guys. And we can make great arguments based upon these, but this will not lead anyone to saving faith. It can't be. They need us to complete that line up there. The green line is the line of saving faith. They need the scripture. They need God's message in written form, and they need to know about Jesus Christ, who is God's saving message in human form. This is what we focus on. This green box is the Bible. We are light bearers. Now, you got to be careful to someone who is in darkness, and you come up and say, hey, let me tell you about the light. You know, that, that just, it would be irritating for any of us to shine it so bright. But say, hey, you've been seeing these wisps and flashes. What do you think about them? Where do you think they come from? Can I tell you about where they come from? And, and I, actually have, I actually have a book that tells a little bit about these wisps and flashes. You want to see? You want to learn about the light? So our job is to take them to the true light. Believers need to focus on that, the elements of the gospel. We need to magnify the Lord. Interesting word, magnify. How do you magnify a God whose hand spans the universe? The fact is, he's in the darkness. God is very small to those in darkness. And to magnify the Lord is to give them a physical version of Jesus in modern day. Your job as a Christian is to be transformed by the Holy Spirit so that when they see Dave, they don't see Dave, they see Jesus in Dave's body. When they've been with Dave, they come away saying, man, that, that guy is amazing. He's, he's very unusual. And Christians will say, being with Dave is like being with Jesus. That is our mission. Whether you're in Indonesia, whether you're in South Africa, whether you're in Seattle, to be transformed and to show them what a transformed life looks like, what the gospel looks like. Spirit-filled, Bible-saturated believer is the most tangible part of the gospel most people will ever see. That's where you start rather than flashing it right in, your, in the face. You actually show them a person who is changed and who is different. And then matching enthusiastic, others-oriented living with God-oriented talk. Well, let me explain to you why I'm a little bit different. Well, so what? Just wrapping up <clears throat> several points. Accept the fact that much about our God is hidden and beyond comprehension. And please appreciate how frustrating that is for many people. There are people, it is true, who have a darkened heart and you can suggest things to them, give them ideas in the gospel and reasons why God exists, and they will turn away because it's not an intellectual thing, it's a heart thing. But there are others who genuinely want to understand who God is and who Jesus was, and find out who he is, um, and what the Bible is all about. And those people have a ready heart, but they have no one to give them the information. I know this from experience, both in the U.S. and in South Africa. There are people, their hearts are ready. God has prepared their hearts, and they need the seed to be sown. If you're a skeptic about God and Jesus and life after death, you need to seriously study God's clues and begin to seek God. Whatever you do, don't be apathetic. A lot of our young people come through this era of skepticism, 
and they feel guilty about feeling skeptical. How do I know this is true? The eight-year-olds, their brain starts to expand. 12-year-olds, same thing happens. And they start saying, well, dad, how about if aliens stole, aliens do exist and they stole away part of the Bible? How do you respond? You don't go, what an idiot. What's wrong with you? You don't do that. You say, man, good question. Okay, uh, if aliens exist, then where did they come from? Who created them? Well, God created everything. Okay, so God created aliens, right. All right, so are aliens more powerful or smarter than God or God more than aliens? No, God more than aliens. All right, so if they stole away a couple of books and you were God, what do you think you'd do? Well, I'd make sure that I got new copies of the books down there. Yeah, that's pretty smart. And they answer their own question as you walk them through it. Skepticism can be a wonderful thing, but it can also destroy. So we need to understand that these are serious issues, serious questions that people have. If you know and walk with God, don't arrogantly suppose that you have God figured out. This is a problem that we've had in fundamentalism. And it was one of the reasons that gave rise to the emergent church who took it far too off, way off the, the bandwagon into liberalism saying, we can't really know anything. And they were so postmodern and so skeptical that they didn't affirm any truth out of scripture. But we need to understand that our God is unbelievably awesome. And the reason that we are as spiritually flat as wet firewood is because we don't understand him. If we spent a little bit of time, you would come back like, that's it. The rest of my life is different. I've got to do something different. And lastly, Dedicate yourself to being a transformed light bearer who shows the source of the wisps and flashes of light to neighbors and nations and next generations. My challenge to you tonight is to be filled with the Spirit and filled with the Word. If you are not living like a missionary here in Seattle, I'm not going to ask you to volunteer for missionary service somewhere overseas. Nothing magical happens at 36,000 feet that turns a loser in Seattle into a winner in Indonesia. Doesn't happen. You gotta do it here first. And as you do it here, people will celebrate you and they'll move you into leadership type positions because you are a person of influence. And then I'll come back at the next missionary conference and I will steal you away. Let's close in prayer. Our God, Yahweh, you are an awesome God. And our language falls short of being able to describe you or appreciate you. But Father, what we do know about you is unbelievable, that you would condescend to humans that you've made in your image and not destroy us. But in your mercy, in your grace, you had this whole plan set out to send your son. And, and you... You hid so much, but thank you for what you revealed and thank you for what Jesus did say and what the, the apostles wrote down. Thank you that we have that in our hands today. But Father, how little we've done with it, how, how poorly we have treasured it. Would you change us? Would you radicalize us by an encounter, a fresh encounter with you, with your spirit, with your word, by your grace? Father, this world and our culture desperately needs the salt and light of the gospel. And it won't do so with such dim lights as us.
I pray that you would strengthen us and quicken us and give us a fresh vision for what you can do and want to do through us for the sake of your kingdom, for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of your name. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.